You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Good morning, uh, Redeemer Church. Um, it is a, uh, a pleasure, truly, to be um, with you gathered again. Um, as I said in the first service, uh, these last few months of, of kind of being together, but mostly being um, online and, and uh, not really being able to see each other has been, uh, has been a drain on my soul. Um, you, you don't realize how much you need the church until you don't have it. Um, so it is truly a blessing to be uh, back gathered together with you. Um, and it is an honor to be able to bring uh, the word to you this morning. Um, so if you would, uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. We'll be in verse Uh, verses 89 through 96. Um, So while you're turning there, um, I felt uh, compelled this morning to to open our study together from Psalm 119 with a confession. Um, Last week, uh, Bobby preached a a powerful message from Psalm 119 about treasuring God's word in the midst of affliction. And he left us with this question, and it's, it's really stuck with me all week. How many of us would affirm the Bible's supreme value, yet fail to open it and bring it in? And I confess, that has haunted me all week, because I have been that person in many seasons of my life. I would affirm the Bible's supreme value, but I fail all too often to open it up and let it mold me, convict me, correct me. And this is especially true when it comes to the Old Testament and the Psalms. I admit this morning that um, I have spent uh, very little time in my life soaking up the Old Testament. To my detriment. So this morning, I want you to hear this message not as a a lecture or as a, a, a condemnation or a rebuke but as the repentant plea of my own heart to love the Word, and especially the Old Testament, as much in practice as I do in desire. This morning, um, I wanted to start out with a reminder then, um, as before we jump into Psalm 119, of what the Psalms and, and the Old Testament in general are in the grand scheme of the biblical narrative. Growing up, you, like me, have probably heard... Um, some form of the the quote about the interrelatedness of the Old Testament and the New Testament that went something like, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, the the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. That's a a modernization of the quote from Augustine, but it was used as a way of assuring us that the Old Testament was still valid and that there was a connectedness to the Old Testament and the New Testament. I remember hearing that and I remember having... Um, that idea um, met, given to me over and over again. The Old Testament and the New Testament, they're both valid. You know, they're both connected. It still matters. But the reality of my church experience growing up was that the Old Testament was very much treated as lesser. I can legitimately count on one hand the number of sermons I heard from the Old Testament. And of that group, it was mostly Genesis 1 through 3 or 
Abraham and Isaac or, you know, sprinkle in a little bit of King David for good measure, but that was it. And so, while it was never explicitly stated, it was implicitly understood that the Old Testament just wasn't as important. And much worse that the two were not really connected all that much. Now, obviously nothing could be further from the truth And as we're studying the Psalms, it feels important to reiterate one very important truth about the Psalms and about the Old Testament in general, that Christ is at the center of every single verse, that Christ is the focal point of all of Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament. The promises of God that he made to Abraham and his descendants to be their God, to redeem them from their sin, to make us his people, that is the central theme of all of Scripture. So as we study the Old Testament together, we can trace a line of God's fulfillment of his promises through, through every page, every verse, every story, every genre. And the Psalms are no different. To be clear, this morning, the Old Testament is not an afterthought. It is not the understudy. It is not the underwhelming second stringer to the impo- the, that's only important if something were to happen. The Old Testament was and is the majestic first act in God's divine unveiling of his redemptive story, equal to the New Testament both in weight and substance. It is not as some would say, the less important of a two-part series. It is not, as some would say, something that we should unhinge ourselves from for the sake of seeker sensitivity. The Old Testament is the pillar on which the church was built. Christ and his apostles saw in the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms the promises of God which Christ fulfilled because of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they could now see the true fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so that brings us to the Psalter, a magnificent compilation of poetry and songs compiled for the edification of the believer and the worship of God. Make no mistake, this is not a random collection of writings from different authors that has little to nothing to do with any other. Rather, the Psalms are, as Dr. Jason DeRoshi puts it, the prayers of Christ and the songs of the saved. So then if you are anything like me, we need to retrain ourselves to read the Psalms and the Old Testament as if specifically The Psalms were Christ's personal diary from suffering servant to triumphal Messiah and a traveler's guide for all of those who take refuge in him. Let me give a quick example of what I mean by this. Psalm 1 and 2 are meant to be an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. And in Psalm 1, we see the contrast between the blessed man and the wicked man. And the blessed man in that Psalm is meant to be representative of the people of God, those who have taken refuge in Christ. But as we move into Psalm 2, 
we see that same contrast applied instead of just being about people to rulers, the blessed ruler and the wicked ruler. And what we discover in verse 7 is that the blessed man is actually first and foremost the Messiah. Verse 7, I tell you of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Sound familiar? And secondly, the blessed are then those who follow after the Messiah, who take refuge in him. As verse 12 says, blessed are those who take refuge in him. So the Psalms are by their nature messianic. Whether they're categorized that way or not, they either speak of the Messiah directly or they point those who are following him towards Jesus. And it is this method of interpretation that follows us into the New Testament as well. For example, in Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 20, the story of Jesus with the Jerusalem leaders, Jesus is claiming to be the Davidic son of the promise while simultaneously being David's Lord. And they ask him how that's possible, but he is quoting from Psalm 110 about himself. We see it again in Luke 24, 44, when he says explicitly, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms were, quote, written about me and must be fulfilled. With the Psalms in that list acting as a representative of all of the writings about the Messiah. And it is this method that, that led both Christ and the apostles to look back at the Psalms and see in them the fulfillment of the promises of God by his anointed. We see that in Acts 2 with Peter, with Paul in Acts 17. We see it throughout the book of Hebrews that we've just studied. The Psalms are again and again referenced over and over to turn us to Christ, to establish Christ as the anointed one, the Messiah that has come. So to sum this up, the Psalms are a true the, the Psalms have a true and a personal meaning to their authors. For example, Psalm 51 is truly about David repenting of his sin. And it still serves as an example to us, the readers, of what good godly repentance looks like. They are, to be clear, expressions of the genuine context of the spiritual life of their author. But at the same time, each psalm, inspired by the Holy Spirit, simultaneously finds its truest and deepest meaning in pointing us toward Christ. Even in the example of Psalm 51, David's prayer to create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, finds its fulfillment in Christ. As verse 19 in that, that psalm talks about the the sacrifice, the offering which God would find pleasing. We can look at that now on this side of the cross and see what David was waiting for was the sacrifice of Christ as the only sacrifice and offering that would please God. So the reason for this long introduction and recap is, is that in my preparation, I was struck by this message. I could, I could have told you intellectually about this, but at my heart level... I just didn't see it. Shamefully, that is because I've spent so little time in the Old Testament. To my detriment. 
And I have allowed myself to be blind to the deep riches of Christ found therein. So my hope for this morning is that most of you are not like me and you have been savoring the sweet nectar of the Old Testament for years. But that if there are some of you like me who have yet to do so, that you will now see the deep wells of God's provision within its pages. So we come to our text this morning. Last week, Bobby taught us on Teth, uh, verses 65 through 72. And we've skipped a few stanzas uh, since then to arrive at our text this morning. But of these sections, the theme of which was affliction. Bobby talked again about treasuring God's word in the midst of affliction. And in the uh, stanza just prior to ours, we arrive at what is kind of the deepest pit of Psalm 19. The author is reflecting on the most gruesome and, and horrible of his, of his affliction. But as we arrive at verse 89, it's as if he's been lifted out of that pit and he's now looking back at it through the lens of God's faithfulness. This morning we are going to look at God's word, but, but God's word as the eternal word of God. So if you would read with me, starting in verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, by your appointment they stand to this day. For all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie and wait for me to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen the limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. So what we see here is as if the author has, has been treading water for some time and he's, he's losing strength and finally out of, no, out of nowhere his foot finds a foothold. And it is by this foothold that he is able to pull himself up upon the rock to rest. And he reflects on the nature of that rock. So we are going to see the eternal nature of God's word in this psalm, not only as a firm foundation for the Christian, but also that this foundation will stand forever. And so this morning, I want to make four observations about this text. And the first is this. The psalmist reminds us of the theological truth first. That is, that God's word is eternal. The first three verses, 89 through 91, establish these as uh, this uh, theological truth, and they are, they are parallel to each other. Forever, O Lord, your word stands firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appoint, appointment, they stand to this day, for all things are your servants. We live in a finite and fragile world. 
And even the secular world understands this to be true, which is that nothing is eternal. And it's clear from the cliches that we use in everyday life, things like nothing lasts forever and all good things come to an end. Every sports dynasty ends, every favorite TV show wraps Our lives, be they happy or sad, successful or not successful, come to an end. The wisdom of a generation becomes folly in the next. And it's this thought of our finite nature that leads many to despair. The only exception to the rule in all of creation is God's word. For centuries, from the beginning of time, really, the enemy has been trying to destroy the Word of God, to suppress it, to to co-opt it, to change it. And yet here we stand today, still standing on the firm foundation. As Christ preached in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest word, not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything has been accomplished. But in Matthew 24, he even states that even then, the word of God will not pass away. It says in verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And we were reminded in in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. So, the psalmist is trying to establish a theological truth First and foremost, God's word is eternal, and it is the only eternal thing in all of creation. And after doing this, the psalmist turns to his own experience. He uses it as a litmus test of this theological truth. It leads us to our second observation, which is that the psalmist found that nothing else in all of creation was sufficient. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. He hearkens us back to the previous stanzas regarding the affliction that he's faced. And if you go back and read through them, you'll see he talks, makes a lot of mention of the slander and the false accusations that are being made against him, of these, of these pitfalls that have been dug for him. And yet he says, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished. This hits me right at home, as I'm sure it will you, because I've felt in my life the despair that comes from placing my hope and my delight in finite and fragile things. And I've felt the crushing despair that comes when those things ultimately fail. These fragile idols that we make for ourselves, they fail us and they break into pieces before our eyes, and the only thing that we're left with is despair. Now, it won't be very hard to imagine that in our current situation, that, the highest, that if, if our highest delight had been in something other than Christ, we'd be in real trouble. Imagine for yourselves for a second what it would have been like to have your highest delight in something like sport or in politics or in finances or in job security. If your highest delight had been in your family or in their health or your health, 
Then about four months ago, the, your world came crashing down. Because all of a sudden, these, these fragile foundations that we had built up for ourselves came absolutely crumbling down. In an instant, everything shut down. And we know every single day, every morning and evening when we come home and we turn on the news, we get the same message over and over again. The sky is falling. And if our hope were not founded on Christ and Christ alone, then we would be in real trouble. The truth is, no one outside of Christ has a foundation that is firm. Foundations of this world are just houses built upon shifting sand. Yet the psalmist can look back at his own darkest hour and say with confidence that his foundation was on the eternal word of God and that by placing his deepest delight in that word, he was able to withstand the constant affliction that he faced. As we sang this morning, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope. And stay on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. If the word of God is not our ultimate delight in this life, then our foundations are cracked and they are vulnerable. And without him, we will perish. But why is that? Because as verse 93 tells us, there is no other foundation that can give us life. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. It is true that in the darkest of hours, even non-believers will run towards God asking and pleading for salvation. But at best, these are still just merely the last gasps of a dying effort to try and save themselves. James Boyce notes in his commentary here that the psalmist is wiser than we think because in addition, in the depths of his pain to, to pleading with God for salvation, he also falls back on what he knows. He runs to the Word of God. He studies it. He meditates on it. And he, found, and he finds that in that obedience, God pulls him out of the pit. That kind of wisdom does not come from from nothing. It doesn't come by accident. It comes from an understanding of our role in our own salvation. It is God who saved us and it is He that gives us life. No longer are we defined by anything but what God has declared to be true about us first and foremost, that we are His children and He is our Father. And like children, we should hang on every word of our Heavenly Father. The psalmist reflects on that truth. He reflects on the truth that it is God who saved him, no one else. So it is God's word that he must cling to. And the same is true for us. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10. I'll read for you this morning because... What it does is it establishes this principle long before we ever get to Psalm 119. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The reward that is promised is abundant life. A life that is built on something so much greater than anything in all of creation. The psalmist knew it, and he drew upon it in the truth of he drew upon that truth in the depths of his despair. However, the psalmist also understood, and we should as well, that keeping keeping God's law and delighting in it does not mean that we will live a pain free life. That leads us to our third observation. The psalmist reminds us that affliction is an ever-present in this life. Verses 94 through 95. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie and wait for me to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. The psalmist has seen the faithfulness of God. And through his eternal word, he understands That God is his ever-present foundation and help in the time of trouble. But, But he also understands that affliction is always going to be present. The word of God is not simply just a an ointment to be applied and and then everything will be okay. The reality of our fallen state is that we will experience pain and affliction in, in our lives constantly. The difference is. We have what we can hold on to, to cling to, to to bring us out of those pits. The truth is echoed by all who have followed Christ. We We are in a church body together that has experienced much pain. And there are many of us in our midst who are and have experienced great affliction. Jesus promised us that this would be true. He promised us that the world hated him. It's going to hate us too. And at every turn, the wicked will lie and wait for us, to slander us, to dig for us pitfalls. That's a guarantee. But the difference between us and the rest of the world is that we have a foundation, a rock that will stand through all of those trials. And that brings us to the fourth observation. The psalmist reminds us that there is no greater foundation. Similar to to verses 92 and 93, the psalmist calls us back to the eternal word of God as being the only answer. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. Notice what's being said here. The author knows that the wicked are plotting against him. Not past tense. They are actively now plotting against him. They are waiting and ready to strike against him. So what does he do? He considers the testimonies of God. He doesn't start to scheme. He doesn't plan his defense or his retaliation. He doesn't plead with God to make the bad men go away. No, he retreats back into the testimony of God's faithfulness and trusts that that will be sufficient as it has been 
for all future affliction. He's not only dwelling on the testimonies of of others, but he's looking back and dwelling on his own testimony of faithfulness. God has been faithful to him so far, and so he will be. And we would do well to remember that for ourselves regularly, that the Lord's faithfulness in our own lives has been a constant. Even more than the affliction and the pain that we face, God's faithfulness is even greater still. Even though affliction and pain will come, God's word will endure forever. Now, we could wrap up this message here and sing a couple of rounds of Just As I Am and call it a day, and I'd say we've heard a, a good message and the word of God was preached, and you could even go home and be encouraged to pick up the word of God and, and be blessed. But ultimately, we would be missing out on the true purpose of this psalm. While the psalmist is truly speaking about the bound word of God, the law, the prophets, the psalms, he's, he's literally referring to the words on these pages. They are his rock, his eternal rock that he clings to in times of affliction. That is true. But simultaneously, the psalmist is also writing about the word of God as the coming Messiah. The embodiment of the word who would establish his reign forever. And we can look at this text now, on this side of the cross, looking back with the lens of the gospel, and we can see the truest meaning of this psalm is not merely this Bible, the the paper and ink, but the truest meaning is the embodiment of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who is the very word of God. And we see these echoes throughout Scripture. So we can read, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand to this day, for all things are your servants. And we can hear those echoes in the New Testament as well, as in John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He in He was in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him nothing has been made that was made. And in John 1, 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And again, in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And in Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who else could it be but Jesus? What more eternal, what more solid foundation could there be than the embodiment of the word of God in flesh? 
The eternal word of God is Christ Jesus, the incarnate word, the one that endures forever, our redeemer, our advocate in the form of man who came to die for you and for me. That is the solid rock. That is who the psalmist is preaching. That is who he is pointing us to. Verse 96, he says, I have seen a limit to all perfection. But your commandment, your word, is exceedingly broad or boundless in some translations. You, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your word is exceedingly boundless, without end. It is to Christ that he refers And now we can look back at our text and see it in the full light of the gospel. Jesus is firmly fixed in the heavens. Jesus has established the earth and it is by his faithfulness that we can endure. Like the psalmist, we can take comfort in knowing that it is the eternal word that not only sustains us, but it is Jesus himself who saves us. It is because Jesus is the word, the incarnate word of God that we have life and we can endure affliction. So I want to leave you with this application this morning. I want to echo back to Bobby's question from last week. If we believe the word of God is supreme in value, Are we running to him? Because at the end of the day, as important as it is to open this word and read it and cherish it for for our own strength, for our own edification, we are not running to the living word of God. We are going to perish. Because Jesus is the manifestation of this word in flesh. We have no other choice in this life, no other foundation to build on, no other other goal to be run toward than Jesus Christ. So in the midst of such difficult times, there is only one foundation that stands firm and it is clear that it is time for us to tear down the finite and fragile scaffolding that holds up our lives. It is time for us to put our deepest delight in the word of God. If we this morning cannot say with the psalmist, your law, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. What stands in our way? Is your delight in money? Give it away. Is your delight in material things? Sell them. Is it your sin? Kill it. Is it an idol? Destroy it. Is it your ambition or hope for the future? Surrender it to Jesus. Jesus is greater. He is the word of God eternal. More precious than gold, sweeter than honey. And by the word of God, we are warned that in keeping there is great reward. If you have never experienced that kind of a firm foundation in your life, 
if the foundations you have built for yourselves are shifting underneath your feet, I ask you this morning, why not now? If you desire to know the sweetness of God's word, the riches of his abundant life, then I ask you, what are you waiting for? Surrender this morning to the working of the Holy Spirit on your life and take heart. For the rest of us, let it serve as a great reminder. The word of God is living and active. The delights of this world are hollow and fleeting. The riches of God's grace are overwhelming. Let us delight in the Lord together. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand.